All right, brave souls and easily spooked wanderers, before we dive into the adult-themed chaos of Dark Enigma, here's your legal heads up. Our tales and banter might disturb, frighten, or even offend you. If you're the kind who faints at the sight of a dark shadow, well, this may not be your cup of eerie tea. Consider this your warning. Listener discretion is advised, and we will not be held responsible for any spilled coffee, drop jaws, or overly dramatic gasps that may ensue. Therefore, clutch your pearls at your own peril. So, buckle up, or don't, I'm not your mother, and you have been warned. Greetings, my fabulous heathens, and step right up to the vortex of the peculiar and unexplained. This is Dark Enigma, and I... I'm your ringmaster, Nicole Delacroix, here to guide you through tales of things that go bump in the night. Creatures that haunt your dreams, supernatural beings with more drama than your nosy neighbor, and a sprinkle of unsolved mysteries. So, buckle up, grab your beverage of choice, and prepare to be whisked away to the dark, delightful conundrum of today's episode. Let the weirdness commence as we dive into... Today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, brace yourselves for a topic that tickles the paranormal fancy. Here we are, diving into the abyss of the mysterious, armed with our usual dose of sarcasm and a dash of dark humor. And of course, our drinking game. Because, let's face it, you're listening to a podcast and your social calendar is as full as a ghost's wardrobe. So, round up your favorite spirits be it a fancy wine or a trusty brew, and get ready to embark on a journey into the realms of the weird and the wacky. Take a swig every time you're mystified by the podcast's spellbinding tale, or equally spellbinding host. But remember, the choice of poison is entirely yours. Choose wisely, and let the laughter and libations flow. All right, now for the game part. How about every time I say... Story, that will be a single shot. And every time I say love, that'll be a double shot. All right, now that we have the business end out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's Dark Enigma. So don your best corset and equally best top hat and snuggle by the roaring fire as we dive into today's offering of Ghosts in the Gaslight. A Victorian Ghost Story Extravaganza In the flickering glow of gas lamps and the whispering winds of the Victorian era, our journey into the spectral unknown begins. Tonight, we unearth three tales that linger in the shadows of history, tales of ghosts and mysteries that transcend time. From the echoes of forbidden love to the ethereal echoes of festive soirees, these stories promise to transport you to a bygone era where the line between the living and the departed blurs. So, as we pull back the velvet curtain on these Victorian ghost stories, let us embark together on an exploration of phantoms and mysteries that have woven themselves into the fabric of the 19th century, leaving an indelible mark on the corridors of time. And for our first visit this evening we will be telling you the tale of the woman's ghost story originally by Algernon Blackwood. And I quote, Yes, she said from her seat in the dark corner, 
I'll tell you an experience if you care to listen. And what's more, I'll tell it briefly without trimmings. I mean, without unessentials. That's a thing storytellers never do, you know, she laughed. They drag in all the unessentials and leave their listeners to disentangle. But I'll give you just the essentials, and you can make of it what you please. But on one condition, that at the end you ask no questions, because I can't explain it and have no wish to. We agreed. We were all serious. After listening to a dozen prolix stories from people who merely wished to talk, but had nothing to tell, we wanted essentials. In those days, she began, feeling from the quality of our silence that we were with her, in those days, I was interested in psychic things and had arranged to sit up alone in a haunted house in the middle of London. It was a cheap and dingy lodging house in a mean street, unfurnished. I had already made a preliminary examination in daylight that afternoon, and the keys from the caretaker who lived next door were in my pocket. The story was a good one, satisfied me at any rate, that it was worth investigating, and I won't weary you with details as to the woman's murder and all the tiresome elaboration as to why the place was alive. Enough that it was. I was a good deal bored, therefore, to see a man whom I took to be the talkative old caretaker, waiting on me on the steps when I went in at 11 p.m., for I had sufficiently explained that I wished to be there alone for the night. I wished to show you the room, he mumbled, and of course I couldn't exactly refuse, having tipped him for the temporary loan of a chair and table. Come in then, and let's be quick, I said. We went in, he shuffling after me through the unlighted hall up to the first floor where the murder had taken place, and I prepared myself to hear his inevitable account before turning him out with the half-crown his persistence had earned. After lighting the gas, I sat down in the armchair he had provided, a faded brown plush armchair, and turned for the first time to face him and get through with the performance as quickly as possible. And it was in that instant I got my first shock. The man was not the caretaker. It was not the old fool Carrie I had interviewed earlier in the day and made my plans with. My heart gave a jump. Now who are you, pray, I said. You're not Carrie, the man I arranged with this afternoon. Who are you? I felt uncomfortable, as you may imagine. I was a psychical researcher and a young woman of new tendencies and proud of my liberty, but I did not care to find myself in an empty house with a stranger. Something of my confidence left me. Confidence with women, you know, is all humbug after a certain point. Or perhaps you don't know. For most of you are men. But anyway, my pluck ebbed in a quick rush, and I felt afraid. Who are you? I repeated quickly and nervously. The fellow was well-dressed, youngish, and good-looking, but with a face of great sadness. I myself was barely thirty. I'm giving you essentials, or I would not mention it. Out of quite ordinary things comes this story. I think that's why it has value. No, he said, I'm the man who was frightened to death. His voice and his words ran through me like a knife, 
and I felt ready to drop. In my pocket was the book I had brought to make notes in. I felt the pencil sticking in the socket. I felt, too, the extra warm things I had put on to sit upon, as no bed or sofa was available. A hundred things dashed through my mind, foolishly and without sequence or meaning, as the way is when one is truly frightened. Unessentials leaped up and puzzled me, and I thought of what the papers might say if it came out, and what my smart brother-in-law would think, and whether it would be told that I had cigarettes in my pocket and was a free thinker. The man who was frightened to death, I repeated, aghast. That's me, he said stupidly. I stared at him just as you would have done, any one of you men now listening to me, and felt my life ebbing and flowing like a sort of hot fluid. You needn't laugh. That's how I felt. Small things, you know, touch the mind with great earnest when terror is there, true terror. But I might have been at a middle-class tea party for all the ideas I had. They were so ordinary." "'But I thought you were the caretaker I tipped this afternoon to let me sleep here,' I gasped. "'Did did Carrie send you to meet me?' "'No,' he replied in a voice that touched my boots somehow. "'I am the man who was frightened to death, and what is more, I am frightened now.' "'So am I,' I managed to utter, speaking instinctively. "'I'm simply terrified.' Yes, he replied in that same odd voice that seemed to sound within me. But you are still in the flesh, and I am not. I felt the need for vigorous self-assertion. I stood up in that empty, unfurnished room, digging the nails into my palms and clenching my teeth. I was determined to assert my individuality and my courage as a new woman and a free soul. You mean to say you are not in the flesh, I gasped. What in the world are you talking about? The silence of the night swallowed up my voice. For the first time, I realized that darkness was over the city, that dust lay upon the stairs, that the floor above was untenanted, and the floor below was empty. I was alone in an unoccupied and haunted house, unprotected, and a woman. I chilled. I heard the wind round the house and knew the stars were hidden. My thoughts rushed to policemen and omnibuses and everything that was useful and comforting. I suddenly realized what a fool I was to come to such a house alone. I was icily afraid. I thought the end of my life had come. I was an utter fool to go in for psychical research when I had not the necessary nerve. Good God, I gasped, if you're not Carrie, the man I arranged with, who are you? I was truly stiff with terror. The man moved slowly towards me across the empty room. I held up my arm to stop him, getting up out of my chair at the same moment, and he came to halt just opposite to me, a smile on his worn and sad face. I told you who I am, he repeated quietly with a sigh, looking at me with the saddest eyes I have ever seen, and I am frightened still. By this time I was convinced that I was entertaining either a rogue or a madman, and I cursed my stupidity in bringing the man in without having seen his face. 
My mind was quickly made up, and I knew what to do. Ghosts and psychic phenomena flew to the winds. If I angered the creature, my life might pay the price. I must humor him till I got to the door, and then race for the street. I stood bolt upright and faced him. We were about of a height, and I was a strong, athletic woman who played hockey in winter and climbed Alps in the summer. My hand itched for a stick, but I had none. Now, of course, I remember, I said with a sort of stiff smile that was very hard to force. Now I remember your case and the wonderful way you behaved. The man stared at me stupidly, turning his head to watch me as I backed more and more quickly to the door. But when his face broke into a smile, I could control myself no longer. I reached the door in a run and shot out onto the landing. Like a fool, I turned the wrong way and stumbled over the stairs leading to the next story. But it was too late to change. The man was after me, I was sure, though no sound of footstep came. And I dashed up the next flight, tearing my skirt and banging my ribs in the darkness, and rushed headlong into the first room I came to. Luckily, the door stood ajar, and still more fortunate, there was a key in the lock. In a second, I had slammed the door, flung my whole weight against it, and turned the key. I was safe, but my heart was beating like a drum. A second later, it seemed to stop altogether, for I saw that there was someone else in the room besides myself. A man's figure stood between me and the windows, where the street lamps gave just enough light to outline his shape against the glass. I'm a plucky woman, you know, for even then I didn't give up hope, but I may tell you that I have never felt so vilely frightened in all my born days. I had locked myself in with him. The man leaned against the window, watching me, where I lay in a collapsed heap upon the floor. So there were two men in the house with me, I reflected. Perhaps other rooms were occupied, too. What could it all mean? But as I stared, something changed in the room, or in me, hard to say which, and I realized my mistake, so that my fear, which had so far been physical, at once altered its character and became psychical. I became afraid in my soul instead of in my heart, and I knew immediately who this man was. How in the world did you get up here? I stammered to him across the empty room, amazement momentarily stimming my fear. Now, let me tell you, he began, in that odd, faraway voice of his that went down my spine like a knife. I'm in different space, for one thing, and you'd find me in any room you went into, for according to your way of measuring, I'm all over the house. Space is a bodily condition, but I am out of the body, and I'm not affected by space. It's my condition that keeps me here. I want something to change my condition for me, for then I could get away. What I want is sympathy, or really more than sympathy, I want affection, I want love. While he was speaking, I gathered myself slowly upon my feet. I wanted to scream and cry and laugh all at once, but I only succeeded in sighing, for my emotion was exhausted and a numbness was coming over me. I felt for the matches in my pocket and made a movement toward the gas jet. 
I should be much happier if you didn't light the gas, he said at once, for the vibrations of your light hurt me a good deal. You need not be afraid that I shall injure you. I can't touch your body to begin with, for there's a great gulf fixed, you know. And really this half-light suits me best. Now, let me continue what I was trying to say before. You know, so many people have come to this house to see me, and most of them have seen me, and one and all have been terrified. If only, oh, if only someone would not be terrified, but kind and loving to me. Then you see, I might be able to change my condition and get away. His voice was so sad that I felt tears start somewhere at the back of my eyes, but fear kept all else in check, and I stood shaking and cold as I listened to him. Who are you then? Of course, Carrie didn't send you. I know now, I managed to utter. My thoughts scattered dreadfully, and I could think of nothing to say. I was afraid of a stroke. I know nothing about Carrie or who he is, continued the man quietly, and the name my body had I have forgotten, thank God. But I am the man who was frightened to death in this house ten years ago, and I have been frightened ever since, and I am frightened still. For the succession of cruel and curious people who come to this house to see the ghost, and thus keep alive its atmosphere of terror, only helps to render my condition worse. If only someone would be kind to me, laugh, speak gently and rationally with me, cry if they like, pity, comfort, soothe me. Anything but come here in curiosity and tremble as you are now doing in that corner. Now, madam, won't you take pity on me? His voice rose to a dreadful cry. Won't you step out into the middle of the room and try to love me a little? A horrible laughter came gurgling up in my throat as I heard him, but the sense of pity was stronger than the laughter, and I found myself actually leaving the support of the wall and approaching the center of the floor. By God, he cried at once, straightening up against the window. You have done a kind act. That's the first attempt at sympathy that has been shown me since I died, and I feel better already. In life, you know, I was a misanthrope. Everything went wrong with me, and I came to hate my fellow men so much that I couldn't bear to see them even. Of course, like begets like, and this hate was returned. Finally, I suffered from horrible delusions, and my room became haunted with demons that laughed and grimaced, and one night I ran into a whole cluster of them near the bed, and the fright stopped my heart and killed me. It's hate and remorse as much as terror that clogs me so thickly and keeps me here. If only someone could feel pity and sympathy and perhaps a little love for me, I could get away and be happy. When you came this afternoon to see over the house, I watched you, and a little hope came to me for the first time. I saw you had courage, originality, resource, love. If only I could touch your heart without frightening you, I knew I could perhaps tap that love you have stored up in your being there, and thus borrow the wings for my escape. Now I must confess, my heart began to ache a little, as fear left me and the man's words sank their sad meaning into me. 
Still, the whole affair was so incredible and so touched with unholy quality, and the story of the woman's murder I had come to investigate had so obviously nothing to do with this thing, that I felt myself in a kind of wild dream that seemed likely to stop at any moment and leave me somewhere in bed after a nightmare. Moreover, his words possessed me to such an extent that I found it impossible to reflect upon anything else at all or to consider adequately any ways or means of actions or escape. I moved a little nearer to him in the gloom, horribly frightened, of course, but with the beginnings of a strange determination in my heart. You women, he continued, his voice plainly thrilling at my approach, you wonderful women, to whom life often brings no opportunity of spending your great love, Oh, if you only could know how many of us simply yearn for it, it would save our souls, if but you knew. Few might find the chance that you now have, but if you only spent your love freely, without definite object, just letting it flow openly for all who need, you would reach hundreds and thousands of souls like me and release us. Oh, madam, I ask you again to feel with me, to be kind and gentle, and if you can to love me a little. My heart did leap within me, and this time the tears did come, for I could not restrain them. I laughed, too, for the way he called me Madam sounded so odd, here in this empty room at midnight in a London street. But my laughter stopped dead and merged in a flood of weeping when I saw how my change of feeling affected him. He had left his place by the window and was kneeling on the floor at my feet. His hand stretched out towards me, and the first signs of a kind of glory about his head. "'Put your arms round me and kiss me for the love of God,' he cried. "'Kiss me, oh, kiss me, and I shall be freed. You have done so much already, now do this.' I stuck there, hesitating, shaking, my determination on the verge of action, yet not quite able to compass it. But the terror had almost gone." Forget that I'm a man and you're a woman, he continued, in the most beseeching voice I had ever heard. Forget that I'm a ghost, and come out boldly and press me to you with a great kiss, and let your love flow into me. Forget yourself just for one moment, and do a brave thing. Oh, love me, love me, love me, and I shall be free. The words, or the deep force they somehow released in the center of my being, stirred me profoundly, and an emotion infinitely greater than fear surged up over me and carried me with it across the edge of action. Without hesitation, I took two steps forward toward him where he knelt, and held out my arms. Pity and love were in my heart at that moment. Genuine pity, I swear, and genuine love. I forgot myself and my little tremblings in a great desire to help another soul. I love you, poor, aching, unhappy thing, I love you, I cried through hot tears, and I am not the least bit afraid in the world. The man uttered a curious sound like laughter, yet not laughter, and turned his face up to me. The light from the street below fell on it, but... There was another light, too, shining all round it, that seemed to come from the eyes and skin. He rose to his feet and met me, and in that second I folded him to my breast and kissed him full on the lips again and again. All our pipes had gone, and not even a skirt rustled in that dark studio as the storyteller paused a moment to steady her voice, and put a hand softly up to her eyes before going on. 
Now what can I say, and how can I describe to you all the skeptical men sitting there with pipes in your mouths, the amazing sensation I experienced of holding an intangible, impalpable thing so closely to my heart that it touched my body with equal pressure all the way down, and then melted away somewhere into my very being. For it was like seizing a rush of cool wind, and feeling a touch of burning fire the moment it had struck its swift blow and passed on. A series of shocks ran all over and all through me, a momentary ecstasy of flaming sweetness and wonder thrilled down into me. My heart gave another leap, and then I was alone. The room was empty. I turned on the gas and struck a match to prove it. All fear had left me, and something was singing round me in the air, and in my heart like the joy of a spring morning in youth. Not all the devils or shadows or hauntings in this world could then have caused me a single tremor. I unlocked the door and went all over the dark house, even into kitchen and cellar and up among the ghostly attics. But the house was empty. Something had left it. I lingered a short hour, analyzing, thinking, wondering. You can guess what and how, perhaps, but I won't detail, for I promised only essentials, remember? and then went out to sleep the remainder of the night in my own flat, locking the door behind me upon a house no longer haunted. But my uncle, Sir Henry, the owner of the house, required an account of my adventure, and of course I was duty-bound to give him some kind of a true story. Before I could begin, however, he held up his hand to stop me. First, he said, I wish to tell you a little deception I ventured to practice on you. So many people have been to that house and seen the ghost that I came to think the story acted on their imaginations, and I wished to make a better test. So I invented for their benefit another story, with the idea that if you did see anything, I could be sure it was not due merely to an excited imagination. Then what you told me about a woman having been murdered at all was not the true story of the haunting, she said. It was not, he continued. The true story is that a cousin of mine went mad in that house and killed himself in a fit of morbid terror, following upon years of miserable hypochondriasis. It is his figure that investigators see. That explains it, I gasped. Explains what, he said. I thought of that poor struggling soul longing all these years for escape and determined to keep my story for the present to myself. Explains, I mean, why I did not see the ghost of the murdered woman, I concluded. Precisely, said Sir Henry, and why, if you had seen anything, it would have had value, inasmuch as it could not have been caused by the imagination working upon a story that you already knew. The End All right, my loves, our second venture is called The Phantom Hag. And the author of this one is unknown, or rather lost to time, but hopefully you'll enjoy it as much as the first. The Phantom Hag, Author Unknown The other evening in an old castle, the conversation turned upon apparitions, each one of the party telling a story. As the accounts grew more horrible, the young ladies drew closer together. Have you ever had an adventure with a ghost, said they to me. Do you not know a story to make a shiver? Come, tell us something. I am quite willing to do so, I replied. I will tell you of an incident that happened to myself. 
Toward the close of the autumn of 1858, I visited one of my friends, sub-prefect of a little city in the center of France. Albert was an old companion of my youth, and I had been present at his wedding. His charming wife was full of goodness and grace. My friend wished to show me his happy home and to introduce me to his two pretty little daughters. I was feted and taken great care of. Three days after my arrival, I knew the entire city, curiosities, old castles, ruins, etc. Every day, about four o'clock, Albert would order the Phaeton, and would and we would take a long ride, returning home in the evening. One evening, my friend said to me, Tomorrow we will go further than usual. I want to take you to the Black Rocks. They are curious old druidical stones on a wild and desolate plain. They will interest you. My wife has not yet seen them, so we will take her as well. The following day, we drove out at the usual hour. Albert's wife sat by his side. I occupied the back seat alone. The weather was gray and somber that afternoon, and the journey was not very pleasant. When we arrived at the Black Rocks, the sun was just setting. We got out of the Phaeton, and Albert took care of the horses. We walked some little distance through the fields before reaching the giant remains of the old Druin religion. Albert's wife wished to climb to the summit of the altar, and I assisted her. I can still see her graceful figure as she stood draped in a red shawl, her veil floating around her. How beautiful it is! But does it not make you a little melancholy, she said, extending her hand toward the dark horizon, which was lighted a little by the last rays of the sun. The afternoon wind blew violently and sighed through the stunted trees that grew around the stone cromlechs. Not a dwelling nor a human being was in sight. We hastened to get down and silently retraced our steps to the carriage. We must hurry, said Albert. The sky is threatening and we shall have scarcely time to reach home before night. We carefully wrapped the roads around his wife. She tied the veil around her face, and the horses started into a rapid trot. It was growing dark. The scenery around us was bare and desolate. Clumps of fir trees here and there, and firs bushes formed the only vegetation. We began to feel the cold, and the wind blew with fury. The only sound we heard was the steady trot of the horses and the sharp, clear tinkle of their bells. Suddenly I felt the heavy grasp of a hand upon my shoulder. I turned my head quickly. A horrible apparition presented itself before my eyes. In the empty place at my side sat a hideous woman. I tried to cry out. The phantom placed her fingers upon her lips to impose silence upon me. I could not utter a sound. The woman was clothed in white linen. Her head was cowled. Her face was overspread with a corpse-like pallor and in place of eyes were ghastly black cavities. I sat motionless, overcome by terror. The ghost suddenly stood up and leaned over the young wife. She encircled her with her arms and lowered her hideous head as if to kiss her forehead. What a wind, cried Madame Albert, turning precipitately toward me. My veil is torn. As she turned, I felt the same infernal pressure on my shoulder, and the place occupied by the phantom was empty. I looked out to the right and left. The road was deserted, not an object in sight. What a dreadful gale, said Madame Albert. Did you feel it? I cannot explain the terror that seized me. My veil was torn by the wind as if by an invisible hand. I am trembling still. 
"'Never mind,' said Albert, smiling. "'Wrap yourself up, my dear. "'We will soon be warming ourselves by a good fire at home, "'and I am starving.' "'A cold perspiration covered my forehead. "'A shiver ran through me. "'My tongue clove to the roof of my mouth, "'and I could not articulate a sound.' A sharp pain in my shoulder was the only sensible evidence that I was not the victim of a hallucination. Putting my hand upon my aching shoulder, I felt a rent in the cloak that was wrapped around me. I looked at it, five perfectly distinct holes, visible traces of the grip of the horrible phantom. I thought for a moment that I should die, or that my reason should leave me. It was, I think, the most dreadful moment of my life. Finally, I became more calm. This nameless agony had lasted for some minutes. I do not think it is possible for a human being to suffer more than I did during that time. As soon as I had recovered my senses, I thought at first I would tell my friends all that had passed, but hesitated, and finally did not, fearing that my story would frighten Madame Albert, and feeling sure my friend would not believe me. The lights of the little city revived me, and gradually the oppression of terror that overwhelmed me became lighter. So soon as we reached home, Madame Albert untied her veil. It was literally in shreds. I hoped to find my clothes whole and prove to myself that it was all imagination. But no, the cloth was torn in five places, just where the fingers had seized my shoulder. There was no mark, however, upon my flesh, only a dull pain. I returned to Paris the next day, where I endeavored to forget the strange adventure or at least when I thought of it, I would force myself to think it a hallucination. The day after I returned, I received a letter from my friend Albert. It was edged with black. I opened it with a vague fear. His wife had died the very day of my return. The end. Well, that's a momentous end. All right, and our third and final story for the Victorians, The Dead Woman's Photograph. Again, the author is unknown. Virgil Hoyt is a photographer's assistant up at St. Paul, and a man of a good deal of taste. He has been in search of the picturesque all over the West, at hundreds of miles to the north in Canada, and can speak three or four Indian dialects and put a canoe through the rapids. That is to say, he is a man of an adventurous sort and no dreamer. He can fight well and shoot well, and swim well enough to put a winning race with the Indian boys, and he can sit all day in the saddle and not dream about it at night. Wherever he goes, he uses his camera. The world, Hoyt is in the habit of saying to those who sit with him when he smokes his pipe, was created in six days to be photographed. Man, and especially woman, was made for the same purpose. Clouds are not made to give moisture, nor trees to cast shade. They were created for the photographer. In short, Virgil Hoyt's view of the world is whimsical, and he doesn't like to be bothered with anything disagreeable. That is the reason that he loathes and detests going to a house of mourning to photograph a corpse. The horribly bad taste of it offends him partly, and partly he is annoyed at having to shoulder, even for a few moments, a part of someone's burden of sorrow. He doesn't like sorrow, and would willingly canoe 500 miles up the cold Canadian rivers to get rid of it. Nevertheless, an assistant photographer, it is often his duty to do this very kind of thing. 
Not long ago, he was sent for by a rich Jewish family at St. Paul to photograph the mother who had just died. He was very much put out, but he went. He was taken to the front parlor where the dead woman lay in her coffin. It was evident that there was some excitement in the household and that a discussion was going on, but Hoyt wasn't concerned and so he paid no attention to the matter. The daughter wanted the coffin turned on in, in order that the corpse might face the camera properly. But Hoyt said he could overcome the recumbent attitude and make it appear that the face was taken in the position it would naturally hold in life, and so they went on and left him alone with the dead. The face was a strong and positive one, such as may often be seen among Jewish matrons. Hoyt regarded it with some admiration, thinking to himself that she was a woman who had been used to having her own way. There was a strand of hair out of place, and he pushed it back from her brow. A bud lifted its head too high from among the roses on her breast and spoiled the contour of the chin, so he broke it off. He remembered these things later very distinctly and that his hand touched her bare face two or maybe three times. Then he took the photographs and left the house. He was very busy at the time and several days elapsed before he was able to develop the plates. He took them from the bath, in which they had lain with a number of others, and went to work upon them. There were three plates, he having taken that number merely as a precaution against any accident. They come up well, but as they developed he became aware of the existence of something in the photograph which had not been apparent to his eye. The mysterious always came under the head of the disagreeable with him, and was therefore to be banished so he made only a few prints and put the things away out of sight. He hoped that something would intervene to save him from attempting an explanation. But it is a part of the general perplexity of life that things do not intervene as they ought. And when they ought, so one day his employer asked him what had become of those photographs. He tried to evade him, but it was futile, and he got out the finished photographs and showed them to him. The older man sat staring at them for a very long time. Hoyt, said he at length, you're a young man, and I suppose you have never seen anything like this before. But I have. Not exactly the same thing, but similar phenomena have come my way a number of times since I went into the business, and I want to tell you there are things in heaven and earth not dreamt of. Oh, I know all that, Tommy Rot cried Hoyt angrily, but when anything happens, I want to know the reason why and how it is done. All right, said his employer, then you might explain why and how the sun rises. But he humored the younger man sufficiently to examine with him the bath in which the plates were submerged and the plates themselves. All was as it should be, but the mystery was there and could not be done away with. Hoyt hoped against hope that the friends of the dead woman would somehow forget about the photographs, but of course the wish was unreasonable, and one day the daughter appeared and asked to see the photographs of her mother. Well, to tell the truth, stammered Hoyt, those didn't come out as well as we could wish. But let me see them, persisted the lady. I'd like to look at them anyway. And he showed her the prints. Well now, said Hoyt, trying to be soothing, as he believed it was always best to be with women. To tell the truth, he was an ignoramus where women were concerned. Okay. Personal note, most men are. Okay. I think it would be better if you didn't see them. There are reasons why. 
He ambled on like this stupid man that he was, and of course, the Jewess said she would see those pictures without any further delay. So poor Hoyt brought them out and placed them in her hand, and then ran for the water pitcher, and had to be at the bother of bathing her forehead to keep her from fainting. For what the lady saw was this, over face and flowers, and the head of the coffin fell a thick veil, the edges of which touched the floor in some places. It covered the features so well that not a hint of them was visible. There was nothing over my mother's face, cried the lady at length. Not a thing, acquiesced Hoyt. I know because I had occasion to touch her face just before I took the picture. I put some of her hair back from her brow. What does it mean, then, asked the lady. You know better than I. There is no explanation in science. Perhaps there is some in psychology. Well, said the lady, stammering a little, little and coloring. Mother was a good woman, but she always wanted her own way, and she always had it too. Yes? And she would never have had her picture taken. She didn't admire herself. She said no one should ever see a picture of hers. So, said Hoyt meditatively, well, she's kept her word, hasn't she? The two stood looking at the pictures for a time. Then Hoyt pointed, pointed to the open blaze in the grate. Throw them in, he commanded. Don't let your father see them. Don't keep them yourselves. They wouldn't be a good things to keep. That's true enough, said the lady slowly, and she threw them in the fire. Then Virgil Hoyt brought out the plates and broke them before her eyes. And that was the end of it, except that Hoyt sometimes tells the story to those who sit beside him when his pipe is light. The End All right, my loves, as we bid adieu to the flickering shadows of Victorian spirits, let us carry the echoes of their tales into the dawn of a new year. Remember, dear listeners, history may be written, but the ghosts of the past persist in the corners of our imagination. As we step into the future... Let's face the new year with the resilience of a ghost in a haunted house. It may get a little spooky, but we'll keep on haunting. So raise a glass to the mysteries of the past, the laughter of the present, and the hilarious, unpredictable future. As Oscar Wilde once said, you can never be overdressed or overeducated or overprepared for the unexpected twists of the new year. And with that... We have come to the end of our episode. Here we are, folks, at the eerie end of another Dark Enigma escapade and the last episode for the year. Thanks for hanging in there with me through the twists and turns of the paranormal playground. But before you slip back into the mundane realm, let those supernatural thoughts swirl like a ghostly apparition. Reach out to me, your fearless paranormal navigator, at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. Got ideas for future episodes or you just want to swap some spooky stories? I am all ears. And I respond faster than a cryptid vanishing into the night. This is Dark Enigma, signing off from the cryptic corridors of Renegade Talk Radio. Until our wavelengths cross again, keep those ghost detectors charged, and beware of things that go bump in the night. Stay enigmatic, my spectral sidekicks, and remember, the only mystery is how I manage to make every exit sound like a plot twist. I will catch you next year on the Paranormal Flipside. See you, my heathens. I love ya. We don't sugarcoat shit. <laughs> this is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.